All right, let's get after it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there is a uh, black one in front of you uh, under the seats. You are in the front row or back row. Uh, you have to be creative <coughs> to get one of those. We're in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Hope you're doing well. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Uh, we are one week away from our break in Hebrews. Uh, so after next week, we'll take a uh, our first kind of break from Hebrews, I think about six weeks uh, and then we'll jump back into to Hebrews 6 in May. Um, so we're going to, what we're going to do this morning is, is take our time and kind of slow down a little bit. And so as we move through Hebrews, we've been going six or seven, eight, ten verses at a time. And, and we're going to slow down this morning and, and really just hone in on three. Uh, and so when you're reading scripture, there's, I mean, there's a few ways to do it. One is to take a, a bigger chunk, a big passage, and kind of get the big picture. And then you can also slow down and, and just kind of really digest and chew on a few verses. And that's what we're going to do this morning uh, in Hebrews 4. There's a lot for us here to, to see and to let um, enter into our, our minds and our hearts. Uh, so Hebrews 4, we'll pick up in verse 14. We'll read through our passage. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was in every respect, has one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Okay, so if you remember throughout Hebrews, what the author has been doing constantly, over and over again, is saying, he looks back at the Old Testament, something in the Old Testament. And he says it's been pointing towards Jesus. He views the Old Testament as an unfinished story. And so he's been looking back at different things in the Old Testament uh, and saying that was a type. That was a pattern. Um, that was a shadow of the reality that what God is doing in Christ with the cross with you and I. Uh, so he looks back at how God has spoken in the past. And we'll remember in, in Hebrews um, chapter 1 he says, um, For ages God's been speaking to his people. He's been coming, communicating a message. This is who I am. This is what I desire for you. This is what I'm doing in the world. And he's been speaking and speaking. He's given us these pictures of who he is and what he's doing. And Hebrews is saying, now we have the final picture. We have the ultimate reality, what these shadows were pointing towards. And so if you remember in chapter 3, he, he looks at Moses. And the verse in, in Numbers 12, where Moses was faithful in all God's house. He says, that was a type. That was a pattern. That was pointing towards Jesus who is faithful in all of God's house. And these past two weeks, he's looked at Psalm 95 and said, this scene in the Old Testament where the Israelites have been saved out of Egypt but are yet to enter the promised land, that's a pattern, that's an example of our situation where we've been converted and, and brought to faith, but we have yet to enter the promise. We've yet to enter eternal life. So there's lessons for us. And he says, um, Joshua was a type of Jesus. Joshua was leading God's people into the promised land. Jesus is fully and finally and completely and perfectly leading us into the promised land, eternal life. And so here again, he looks at an Old Testament concept and says this was pointing all along to who Jesus was and what he would do for you and I, um, God's people. And so he says, Jesus is our great high priest. Here in verse 14, um, he is our final, he's our perfect high priest. We've had these shadows of a high priest, and now they have pointed perfectly to who Jesus is and what he's doing. They were there all along saying, look ahead, look ahead, look ahead. And now Jesus is here, and he's saying, now we see in full. He is our, our great high priest. He is our final 
high priest. Um, so let's talk about this idea of a high priest. It is a concept that's foreign <laughs> to us. Um, it's a Jewish concept, um, very intertwined with animal sacrifice, things like that. Uh, so all of that just seems real Indiana Jones to us. I mean, it's just far off. Um, it's this real Jewish thing. Um, so to understand what a high priest is, actually, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Exodus. Just real quick here. Exodus, let's do 28. I'll show you real fast when God institutes um, the office of priest and high priest. Exodus 28, uh, and this will help us see what the shadow was so we can see what the reality is in Christ. So for history, for years and years and years, there was this man called a high priest in Israel, and he did certain things, and now the scriptures are saying that was all a pointer towards what Jesus is and what he's doing to us and for us. So Exodus 28, we'll pick it up in verse 1. We'll just look at a few verses here. This is after the Exodus, before they enter the promised land. He's talking to Moses, and he says, Then bring near you, 28.1, Aaron your brother, so Moses' brother Aaron, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest. And so here you have the institution of the priesthood. He says, Aaron and Aaron's family will serve me as priest. Uh, if you keep reading, go to verse 29. We're going to skip over. Really what's happening here is he's, God is detailing what the garment of the priest will look like uh, in different instructions like that. And in verse 29, uh, the priest has some sort of breast piece, and he'll say this about it. Uh, and they said, and they shall bind the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod. Uh, well, 29, that was 28. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breast piece of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place, so to the altar, to where God dwells the innermost, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and Thummim. Now, remember these words, because uh, we're actually going to talk about these when we do our series on knowing God's will. Um, these are uh, two little instruments they, the Israelites used uh, to know God's will. So we'll come back to this. Just remember that. Um, but he has those, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Go to verse 35. Again, we're skipping over some instructions about uh, a robe. Uh, and in 35 it says, It shall be this robe on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. Last one to look at. Flip to 29. Um, look up in verse 42. He's now talking about the sacrifice that the high priest will make. So he'll go into the tent of meeting, he'll go into the holy place, and he'll kill an animal. And God's going to explain this. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. Now listen to why he's instituted this high priest. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting, the altar, Aaron also, and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So here's um, the picture of the high priest here in the Old Testament. And in a sense, it's the go-between between God and man. Uh, it's a mediator. It's the man who is representing both man and God. Uh, and so he brings the people to God and brings God to the people. He's the, the go-between, the mediator. Uh, and so he, uh, his responsibilities include presenting sacrifices. So they would slaughter an animal uh, for a few things. One, it's a gift. Uh, and then two, it's a picture. I mean, it's a, it's a living, breathing picture, kind of like our communion, of what God has done and has promised to do to take away our sins. 
that we're forgiven and that the guilt and the shame and the punishment of our sins doesn't come to us. And so they offer the sacrifice. But then also the priest would kind of have a pastoral role. Uh, so he would minister to the people and he would give them advice. He would uh, hear from the Lord much like a prophet would and then speak to his people. Uh, and so throughout the years you had this, this man. So you had a group of priests, this family, it was a tribe. Uh, then one, the leader, was the high priest. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, which was really the big day, one day a year, he would go in to the innermost place of the tabernacle where God dwelt. And he would offer the sacrifice, first for himself, uh, for his sins, and then for the sins of the people of Israel. Um, and throughout history, I mean, this is so important to the Jewish people, this idea of the high priest mediating between God and themselves. And now, once again, Hebrews is saying, what well, you've seen for years and years and years and years with this high priest was a shadow of what Jesus is doing now. He's the reality. He is the great high priest. He's the true and the final high priest. And so as our high priest, he stands both on our side and on God's side. He presents God to us and us to God. And so the passage here is going to explain both of these. Um, go to Hebrews 4 again. We'll start with God's side, um, how he stands firmly and comfortably uh, with God. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We'll come back to that. Jesus, and then look what comes after this, the title given to Jesus, Son of God. We've seen this in Hebrews. This is a very important title in the book of Hebrews, Son of God. If you flip to chapter 1, uh, we'll just read just the first couple verses here. Um, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by his power, and he makes purification for sins and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As the Son of God, Jesus has a unique and supreme role in the universe. Um, so you have all these promises, and, and we've seen a lot of them in Hebrews in chapter 1 and 2. Uh, you have this promise in Psalm 2 that God would send a son whom he would make king. And the son would rule over everything, would be given all as his inheritance, and would bring justice and wisdom, God's peace, God's kingdom. And then you have a, a promise in 2 Samuel 7, also quoted in Hebrews, where God tells David, King David, that a son is coming from David who will reign forever will have an eternal kingdom. Um, and then you have Psalm 110, also quoted by Hebrews, and will be quoted next week in chapter 5, uh, where God says again, my son will defeat all of my enemies. My son will implement my purposes in the world. He will reign as king and crush all the things that war against my desires, my purposes for creation. And so as the son of God, he he brings redemption with his victorious reign. As the Son is installed as the King of all creation, God's redemption is enacted. His promises to creation that he's been communicating from the beginning of time that he wants to undo what sin has done. He wants to get rid of this death that has invaded his, his creation. He wants to bring forgiveness and wholeness and peace and beauty and justice. And those things are coming with the Son of God. Hebrews says, we'll go back to four, um, that, that phrase we skipped. Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, who has what? Where is he? He's passed through the heavens. He's passed through the heavens. Now this is an interesting um, phrase, and I think it holds some, some weight here. Um, heaven in the Old Testament 
is part of two sides of creation. Uh, so God creates the heavens and the earth. And the heavens are seen as God's part of space, and earth is man's part of space. Uh, so you can probably rightly say uh, heaven is like the CEO room of God. Uh, it's where he dwells. It's his dwelling place. Uh, and so he looks down and Jesus prays, what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Control how we live. Bring your kingdom. Bring your justice and your peace and your redemption to earth like it exists in heaven where you dwell perfectly. Um, and so what Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus, when he was exalted, went straight through all of God's space. Uh, so he is, is risen from the dead. He, he gets uh, God the Father uh, brings him alive again. Uh, and he goes straight through the heavens. And so this is plural, maybe because in Hebrew, uh, Hebrew language, heavens is plural often. Or maybe because he, the author has some kind of layered view of heaven, uh, which is in the New Testament every now and then. Um, but he says he's passed straight through the heavens. So now where is he? Well, he's at the right hand of God. He's residing at God's inner presence. So the idea here is that Jesus, after his crucifixion and after his resurrection, does not, um, I mean, he doesn't, go rest and he doesn't go um, take a nap and he doesn't go just float right above us but he goes straight to the father's side and the implication here is that at the father's side he's interceding for us he's interceding for us he is acting as our high priest bringing the offering to God and then bringing God back to us he's our go-between he's our great final perfect high priest he is at God's right hand. And so 1 John 2 uh, would say that, I mean, he writes, if, I don't want you to sin, little children, but if you do sin, you have an advocate, Jesus the righteous, who intercedes, who pleads to the Father on your behalf. The idea here is that when you and I fall, when, when God's looking down on us in heaven, what's happening in the throne room and the very center of heaven is Jesus is right next to God going, I paid for that. That's mine. He's mine. He's forgiven. He's loved. He's purchased. I have covered that. Romans 8 would say the same thing. Um, 834 says, uh, who would condemn us? I mean, who would judge us? It's Christ who has risen and who is now at the right hand of God arguing on our behalf. Almost like a defense attorney. He comes to God at his right hand and says, that's my child. We've purchased that. We've forgiven that the wrath for that sin will not go to that person. I've absorbed it on the cross. Now, so this is the portrait of Jesus on God's side as our high priest. He is with God, beside God. But then the other end of the spectrum there as a high priest is that he's also on our side. He's also with us. And so if you look at verse 15 here, he says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect uh, has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Um, so we can't forget that Jesus was uh, and is a truly human being. Uh, he became man. This is the incarnation. This is our faith. Um, the Son of God became man, took on flesh, took on blood, took on physicality, took on some of the limits and weaknesses of being a human. And really, here's an important truth. Still is a human being. Jesus did not discard his humanity after the resurrection. Um, so, right now, this is an interesting thought. Um, maybe you haven't heard, maybe you need time to digest this, but right now, Jesus, according to the scriptures, has a body. He's a human being. In Acts, after the resurrection of the Gospels, 
After his resurrection, you can feel him. You can touch him. He eats. He walks. The picture in Acts is he ascends into heaven. Is not that somehow his humanity disappears, but that him as a human being, the Son of God, goes. He leaves. He goes to heaven right now. Um, the scriptures say a human being is ruling the world. This is what we saw in chapter 2 with Psalm 8. The promise in Psalm 8 was that a human being would rule the world for God. And Hebrews going, that's Jesus. He's the human being. The Son of God became man, was and still is a human being. And now as a human being, the scriptures say, he sympathizes with our weaknesses because he's been tempted as we have been. And so he felt all the weight and the danger of living in a, a broken and fallen world. So, I mean, there's, there's this weight to life as we know it. And I'm sure you felt it. So, when someone close to you dies, or when a relationship falls apart, or when things just aren't working right, whatever it is, you feel this weight on your chest. I mean, it's like you can't, it's like your soul can't breathe. It's been punched. There's this weight of knowing and understanding that the world is not as it should be. There's these dangers living in a, a fallen and broken world. And the scripture is saying he felt all of that. By becoming a man, he shared completely in that experience. Um, when I was uh, at Sky Ranch in 2007, um, a summer camp, I had 19 year olds. Uh, I overheard one day a conversation going on. And they were kind of um, speculating about Jesus as a boy and growing up and things like that. Uh, and they were saying, you know, it must have been pretty awesome to be Jesus. Uh, I mean, he has powers, he can create and do whatever he wants. Uh, so, I mean, he probably zapped himself a Tempur-Pedic bed, you know, before they existed and uh, just float. I mean, he could do whatever he wanted. I mean, that's the life. Uh, if I had those powers, I would not be complaining as much as I do. Uh, you just fix whatever's wrong and then you go along with it. Um, but when you read the Gospels, what you notice is that Jesus suffers, not just in the crucifixion, from day one, it seems like he's pressed with the weight of living in a fallen world. I mean, he has a hard and dangerous and broken life, full of, of temptation, full of weight, full of hurt and pain. So let me show you this real fast. Go to John. I just want to show you a couple places in John, walking through the life of Jesus. We'll pick up in, verse, in chapter 4 first. John 4, we'll pick it up in, in verse 1. Jesus, he, he feels, he shares in the weight and the, the brokenness of this world. 4 1, we'll pick it up in verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. Jesus is traveling. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So listen to this. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So this is interesting. Jesus is tired. He's walking. He's been dealing with people, which can be exhausting. And he goes, I'm, I'm taking a break. I'm sitting down. Now it gets interesting, even more if you keep reading. Verse 7, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And look at the parentheses here in verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So here's what just happened. Jesus is tired and stops, but his disciples aren't. They go on into the city. I once heard it said in this verse, it seems like the only person without a Messiah complex is the Messiah. Uh, so I don't know. 
Like, it's amazing to me. If I'm working out by myself, here's how it goes. I start running down the street, and about 25 seconds into it, I'm like, this is, this is not fun. Like, this is, my knees hurt already, and I'm out of breath. And then I kind of, you do the scan to see if anyone's watching you, right? And then you just kind of slow down, and then I'll turn around and just go back in the house. I mean, I'm done. It's not fun. Um, but here's the catch. If there's someone with me, I mean, it's amazing how far I can run. And that's the thing. I don't know if this is girls too, but guys, like there's something with you. It's amazing what you can bench. It's amazing what you can run. Just because we have this ego complex and you, I mean, you just keep running. Your legs falling out. You're like, no, I'm good. We're going to keep going. Um, but Jesus here is so tired. He's so exhausted that he lays down any sort of male ego pride and says, hey, we all keep going. We all go into the city. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to chill here. I'm going to rest here. So Jesus feels the weight of having body limitations of wanting to go somewhere but, but not having the energy and the strength to go. So he sits down at the well and then has that conversation with the woman. Uh, if you skip in John to chapter 8, we'll pick it up in verse 48. The Jews answered him. This is a great question. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Uh, so a little passive-aggressive there. Um, Samaritan is kind of like a half-breed Jew. Uh, and then demon is a demon. Um, Jesus answered, I don't have a demon. Uh, to spell that rumor. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. So Jesus feels the weight of frustrated relationships. I think one of the most frustrating feelings is being misunderstood. So you say the same thing over and over and over again. But it's never what the people around you hear. Jesus is preaching, he's healing, he's teaching, he's inaugurating the kingdom of God. And there are people on every turn saying, you're demon-possessed. He feels the weight of not being able to communicate with people. But no matter what you do, so he'll sit down in front of Jerusalem and cry. Because he just wants them to pay attention to what's about to happen. But he can't get their attention. He feels the weight of relationships that aren't the way they're supposed to be. Uh, keep flipping to chapter 11. We'll pick it up in verse 32. Uh, this is a well-known story. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who uh, got sick. They sent word for Jesus to come. Uh, and Jesus uh, says he'll come, but he shows up a little bit late, four days late. Lazarus has been dead four days. Uh, and he shows up, and we'll pick it up in 32. He's approaching Mary. Um, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell on his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved them. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So what happens here in the story is people love to speculate about why Jesus is crying here. And it seems like the more creative the answer, the more spiritual it is. Um, so, I mean, there's all kinds of, of different things out there. And I think, honestly, the further away you get from a baseline reading of the story, the more you're missing the point. Jesus is crying because his friend died. His buddy is dead. He's crying. Now, 
grief experts would say this is often how it works. Grief is like a wave. I mean, it comes in phases. So you'll be crying, you'll be grieving, and you'll start to get together, and someone new will come in. Your grandmother will fly down, or a friend will come, and you start the process over again. You start weeping again. This is what's happening. Jesus arrives, and everyone starts crying again. He sits down and weeps with them. And then also, I mean, look at the story. He's somewhat blamed for Lazarus dying. He feels the weight of death in a world that's not operating the way it's supposed to. And he even feels the weight of being blamed for it, of being told he's responsible for it. The last one, chapter 19. We'll get back to Hebrews. Chapter 19, um, we'll pick up in verse 1. Uh, this is Jesus before the crucifixion. He's in Jerusalem. If you remember when he gets to Jerusalem, um, there's this huge celebration happening as he arrives. Uh, and they're praising God. They're singing songs. I mean, it's this epic party. Um, and then just a few days later, this happens with the same people. Chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. So Pilate is not the... Uh, I mean, he's not the, the most stand-up guy ever, but you'll see what happens. The soldiers twisted together, crown of thorns, put on his head, arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Pilate, again, not, I mean, not your example of just the most stand-up guy, comes to this group of people who just days ago was celebrating Jesus and says he's not guilty. Listen to their response. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns to Pomeroy. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! If you keep reading in chapter 19, soon the whole crowd gets into it. So imagine if you were standing in front of Sugarland. So beyond just like a theological reading of this, if you were standing before Sugarland, thousands of people, and every single one of them was asking for you to die. There's no one on your side. In fact, it's the same people who were on your side days ago. At every step along the way, Jesus is feeling and experiencing the weight and the brokenness of the world that we live in. He's sharing in our weaknesses and our temptations. But if you flip back to Hebrews 4, there's a really interesting phrase here. He says what? He sympathizes because he's been in every respect tempted as we are yet was without sin. So while he felt that weight, where you and I run to other things to comfort ourselves, uh, when we sin and disobey, Jesus did not take that path. He did not choose that route. Now, to many it seems like, it seems like this is making the opposite point of what he was just trying to get at, which is that he can sympathize with you and I. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it'd be like me uh, having an alcohol problem and coming to somebody else, and I mean, they've never drank alcohol in their life, uh, and then expecting them to sympathize with me. Well, I mean, you've never experienced that. You've never made that choice. You never experienced the consequences of making a bad choice. Um, so we look at that and go, how? I mean, how does that help his case here? But I think it does, because I think there's something really powerful going on here. Um, I think, in a true sense, Jesus' sinlessness means that he experienced more suffering, more brokenness than you and I ever will. And I'll explain it like this. Uh, like three years ago, um, before I was pastor here, I was a youth pastor at the time, and uh, I was preaching maybe like twice a month and kind of scheduling the, the preachers. Um, we had a young guy uh, who had preached before, once before, and we invited him back, and so he was coming to preach a second time. Um, and he called me up 
at like 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, Sunday morning, Saturday night. Uh, and was like, hey, I can't preach tomorrow. I'm like, okay, what's, what's happening, buddy? And uh, he's like, you know, I just haven't prayed much this week. Uh, and I haven't prayed much for the message. I just don't feel like I'm in the right place to do it. Um, well, that's, that's great. Uh, so I pushed back on him a little bit, and, and, but he's not going to do it. And so, uh, I mean, I stayed up all night and wrote the message, preached out of 2 Corinthians. It was a pretty good sermon. Uh, but a few weeks later, so he, I mean, he steps out. We don't really see him again at the church. Um, a few weeks later, I overhear him complaining about how hard ministry is. Uh, just, you know, the pressures of preaching and, and doing ministry and things like that. For whatever reason, I, I don't understand at the time, but I get really upset. Like, really upset. Like, I'm angry. And I, I can't pinpoint it. I don't know if it's my just my ego, just, you know, I had a cup before you, um, or what's happening here. Um, but over time, I, I realized what it was. And it was the fact that, in the end, he didn't know how hard ministry was. He quit as soon as it got hard. He doesn't know what it's like to spend the next four hours preparing a message, praying. He doesn't know what it's like to push through the struggles. In a real sense, he's way closer to someone who's never done ministry, speculating on how hard it must be. He hasn't experienced it. So, preaching... Um, is a, a difficult thing to do. And I'll say this carefully here, um, but like when a high schooler complains to me about like a three-page paper, I gently remind them that I have a 40-minute speech every week. New material, same people, um, so I'm just not that sympathetic. You can pound out three pages pretty fast. Um, and so in a sense, uh, there's, a, there's a, a sense of, I'm sorry, it's a, three pages can be tough, I know. Uh, <laughs> it, I, you'll grow over time. Um, <laughs> I think I'm slowly running away the middle schoolers and high schoolers. I just dog on them a lot. Uh, so, there, I mean, there's a sense where you can feel trapped as a preacher because you got this deadline every week. And, then, I mean, there's different stress in every job. Um, so... At the same time, I mean, I'll very carefully say I love preaching. I mean, that's my favorite thing to do in the world. I'm so blessed to be able to do it. There's nothing I would rather do. Um, but there's struggles. I mean, there's sacrifices you have to make. There, there are hard things about it. Um, but this guy has no right to complain about it. None. I don't want to hear it. You have not even experienced what it's like. I think the same thing is happening here in Hebrews. So C.S. Lewis has a quote in Mere Christianity. I want to read for you. Um, just this really insightful quote. So, so listen. He says this, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it actually is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to talk against it not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in a real sense, know very little about badness. They live a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. 
And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. That's what he's saying here. You and I tap out after five minutes, after ten minutes, after three years, after five years. You don't find out the strength of an army by surrendering. You don't know. You can speculate. You find out by fighting against it. He never gave in. In a real sense, he's experienced the depth of darkness in the world more than we ever will. He knows the strength of it. He knows how luring it is. So in a, in a weird paradoxical way here, his sinlessness, it increases his capacity to sympathize with us. When I was in high school, I uh, got in a conversation with a teacher who told me, I mean, we just had a chapel presentation by a guy who's like a drug addict and he comes in to speak uh, and, and the teacher made a remark like, you know, I'm tired of hearing from drug addicts who try to tell us don't do drugs. It's like, you did drugs for 13 years. Uh, I'd rather hear from someone who's never done drugs. And I kind of pushed back on it a little bit um, in the sense that, so as someone who's struggled with addictions, um, people who haven't had addictions don't give good advice. So here's the advice you would get. Uh, so I'm popping pills in high school. Um, here's the advice I would get. Just stop. That's a great plan. I haven't tried the just stop strategy. I did not think of that. The thing about addiction is you can't just, that's the definition of addiction. Um, so in a real sense, like, it, like again, let's use alcoholism. You're struggling with alcoholism. Um, maybe the best person to help you is not someone who's never struggled with that. Here's why. Temptation is not universal. So the scripture says temptation comes from within. It's not as much an external thing as within, which means and explains why you and I could be offered the same thing and it does nothing to me, but it lures and whispers to you. I'm not tempted by meth. I'm just not. I don't think there's a situation where I'd be like, oh, maybe I should try that. But other people are. I mean, that whispers to them. That draws them. The difference is the desires, the evilness inside, our different weaknesses, our different failings. So what we need, and I was telling the teacher, is someone who has experienced the weakness that we have and then has overcome it. And what he was saying is Jesus, without sinning, has done both of those things. He's experienced it to the depth, and he's withheld it. With, he's overcame it. He's gotten through it. And so now at, Jesus, at God's right hand, he looks down at us, and he doesn't patronize us, right? So Mike Skinner doesn't fall, and he doesn't go, God, you are such a Holy Spirit. Do you see that guy? What a, what a loser. I mean, what a failure. I lived 33 years in this and once. Instead, his attitude, the scriptures say, is one of, I know. I know what it's like. It's worse than you've even experienced. I know and I love you and I have bought you with my blood. He intercedes for us. So this is the portrait of who Jesus is as our high priest. He has one foot in God's camp. And then, as we'll see, he has one foot in our camp. And, and that's what we'll turn to. Um, well, that's that's what we, we just saw. He, he, he sides, he's at home with God at his right hand. He's also a human being. He's experienced what we've experienced. He's our great, perfect, final high priest. So if you've seen the posters um, for the Hebrew series, the kind of the catchphrase is, our man in heaven. That's what Jesus is. He's our man now in heaven for us. And so the, the passage here is going to um, spell out kind of the posture of what his people should look like. 
uh, because of who he is and what he's done. Um, so look in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. He says, let us be unwavering in our faith. The call again, we've seen it over and over again, is to not drift away. To not let a life circumstance come in and derail us from our faith, from our trust in God. But to hold fast. Um, and the why here, the because, why do we do that? It's because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done. He has not and will not ever fail his people. He is our great high priest. He has blazed the way to the future and is bringing us toward it. So we've talked in the past two weeks a lot about perseverance um, and the fact that there's these warnings in Scripture that there are consequences if you and I don't hold fast to our faith. We wonder off there are consequences. Um, but we've pushed back with, with a lot of, what I think, what most of us have been taught, which is um, that there's security in God, that once he saved you, um, you're always his. He will protect you and, and keep you. Um, so what I want to do just real fast here is turn some words around. So catch the two words here. We persevere because he preserves. We persevere because he preserves. And you can't ignore either one of those. In Scripture, yes, there are these warnings to persevere, to hold fast. And there's also these promises that we're His. That He's leading us into the future that He's prepared for us. He says here that we should draw near, in verse 16, to the throne. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. So when we're tested, when we're going through a trial, he says we have access to help and to strength in order to remain faithful to Christ. We have access to help and to strength. We receive mercy. We find grace. And he says we do this where? At the throne of grace, which is an interesting phrase here. It's a paradox. Throne is a word that denotes power and authority and might. Grace is gentleness and forgiveness and mercy. But he says for God's people... That's what God is like, a throne of grace. This is we draw near, we find this help and strength in God's presence. In God's presence and a close relationship with him. Now how do we how do we get there? In scriptures historically, how do we approach God? How do we find his presence? How do we receive help and strength? Well, it's by prayer. This is what he's saying in Hebrews. Let's draw near. Let's pray. Let us approach him. Let us communicate with him. Prayer is this really weird thing. I mean, if you sit down and think about it or try to explain it to somebody, where somehow you and I communicate and dialogue with the God of the universe. And it happens differently for different people. Some people write prayers or read prayers. Some people make their own. Some people say it out loud. Some people say it in their head. But we communicate with the God of the universe. It's this weird thing. But the scriptures say over and over again, it's so important. Jesus in the Gospels is going to model a life of prayer for us. So in Luke, there's at least eight instances of Jesus taking significant time away from his ministry to pray. Typically, before something big happens in his life, he withdraws and prays. What he's doing is modeling for us what all of history of God's people has taught us, which is that prayer, in a sense, is like the heartbeat of the Christian life. It's the heartbeat of our life. Um, it's been said by Henry Nouwen that um, a Christian without prayer is like a gospel without Jesus. I mean, they're just so intertwined that you don't really have one without the other. Um, 
And so I say it's a heartbeat. I think we can flesh that out in two ways. Um, one, it's the way that life is distributed to our, our being. It's the way that we receive love, mercy, grace, help, strength, peace, joy. And then two, because I think just like a heartbeat, I mean, if your heartbeat's going too fast or too slow, there's some signs there that there may be some health, some health problems. I think just in the same way, our prayer life is a really good indicator of our spiritual health. There's a really good way to, to feel out some warning flags, some red flags. So do we pray? I mean, if we don't pray, what's happening there? What do we believe in? What's our faith like? Do we have some pride? Do we have just some simple disobedience commanded to pray? Um, when we pray, we talked about this a little bit in the Micah series, are our prayers just petitions, wish lists? Which, again, there's nothing wrong with that. Scripture commands us to ask, to ask boldly. But are there times of praise? Are there times of just being still and being with the God? I think feeling that heartbeat is a great way to see where you are spiritually, what your health is like in the Christian life. It says, draw near to the throne of God with boldness and with confidence. So he says this. He says, Draw near to him when, look at the when here, in times of need. He says we need to allow trials and testing to push us to God. Now this is counterintuitive because what most of us do is life gets hard or we fall or we get angry at God or something bad happens. We start feeling the weight and danger of a broken world and we don't run to God but we withdraw from him. I'm super saying Christians need to learn to run to him, to allow that weight to push us closer to him, no matter what the circumstance. So, um, earlier in, in this school year, in 2010, September-ish, um, my, a real good friend of mine, Adam, uh, who was a youth pastor, he'd been at the church with me for years and years and years, uh, left to go take another job. Um, uh, he's dead to me now. Uh, <laughs> he podcasts, so I'm going to hear this. Um, a lot of you know, uh, that time in my life was a rough time. Um, crying? So, he is dead to me, but um, it was a rough time. I, one, he was leaving, and, and two, uh, I mean, I was finishing school up. It was my last semester in college, and it was just real rough. Um, and uh, so... For whatever reason, I'm, whether I was angry at God or just felt kind of shameful, uh, that one little circumstance could kind of shake my confidence in what I was doing and, and where I was supposed to be, um, I found myself withdrawn from God. And maybe about a week and a half, two weeks into this kind of funk that I was in, I kind of woke up. I was like, what am I doing here? Um, pragmatically, I'm not helping myself. So here's the deadly temptation for us. It's to let trial and testing push us away. It's to run away. And I said it's a deadly temptation because if you just think through what's happening here, here's what you've got. You've got feelings of brokenness and weight and shame, and you're saying, I will react to that by running away from life, by running straight into more brokenness, more shame, more guilt, more darkness. I mean, it's just a self-defeating cycle. You're adding fuel to the fire. Pragmatically, you're not helping anything. Instead, we should let hard times, failings in our lives, we should let that drive us closer to the cross. Approach him more and more and more. 
which is a confident thing, which is why he says, with confidence, with boldness, let's come before the throne, knowing who Jesus is and what he's done for us. There's this boldness here, and the boldness that comes from trusting in his atonement and in his intercession. His atonement, his accomplishment, what he's done for us, his sacrifice, and then his intercession, his implementing that accomplishment at the Father's side. Christian faith is that he knows us and, and he still loves us. It's not that we're good enough. It's not that we deserved it or earned it. But it's that despite ourselves, he loves us and he saved us and he invites us into his rest, into his glory, into his peace, into his joy. This is the, the portrait that, that he gives us here in Hebrews. Life, it has this way of <clears throat> slowly but surely, sometimes more quickly, sucking sucking life out of us, sucking faith out of us, sucking focus out of us. And so there's this sense that we talk about to, to put our foot off the gas pedal or to start falling asleep at the wheel. But over and over again, Scripture is going to say, look at who Jesus is, look at what he's done, and then live an appropriate life because of that. This is who he is. This is now our posture as his people. Scriptures say that Jesus is a perfect fountain of grace for his people. Uh, all that God has wanted to do, he's done in Jesus and is doing in Jesus. So from the beginning, when God comes to creation, fallen, and he says, I'll save, I'll redeem, I'm going to fix this. He's now done it in Christ. And in him and him alone, we find grace and help and salvation and forgiveness and beauty and meaning and purpose. Luther would say that this fountain of grace, it never runs out. It's an endless supply. It's eternal. And then our role as, as his people is to thirst. To thirst and to drink. To recognize our need for him. And then to run to him and find him. So our prayer this morning is as we finish up chapter 4 and slow down on these verses. Is that we would... Confess with the scriptures, with brothers and sisters around the world, that he is this fountain of grace, that he is our great high priest, that he has accomplished God's purposes for the world, and that at the same time, he invites us to participate in that. And our response to that should be nothing but running as hard as we can to him, despite what life throws at us, despite what we find inside of ourselves, but a running after him, a chasing him loving him, worshiping him, and finding that he is the true Moses. He is the true Joshua. And that after this time in the wilderness, we'll find ourselves in eternal rest with him. But for now, we, we see the fountain, we thirst, and we drink. <coughs> Let's pray together. Father, I, I pray um, this morning that you would uh, just stir in our hearts so that you would open up our eyes and souls to, to long to know you and draw near to you. Um, I pray that we would not allow things to keep us from you, that we would see through that lie um, and instead see what you've done, who you are, and then the joy and the privilege we have of, of chasing you, of finding you and, and realizing that you found us, that you'd chosen us all along. Father, we need you and we love you. Be with us. 
What's in your son's perfect name? We pray. Amen.